listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, sorry, for a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. For the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks, Julie. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that we're having sermon talk back today after the, after the service. Um, that should be starting right here in the sanctuary around 11.15 for those who want to dive a little bit deeper, maybe ask some questions and talk about uh, what we've been learning through Advent. And if you're watching this online, uh, you can actually participate in that as well. Uh, if you look at the description of the video, it should be on both Facebook and YouTube. Um, there should be a Zoom link that will allow you to connect with us. You want to click that. After the service ends, it'll put you in a waiting room, and then uh, once the talk back gets started, um, we'll get you connected. How are we doing with Advent so far? Are we, are we feeling it? It's, it's definitely like a different Advent season. Like, I'm, I'm really excited for Christmas, but I'm also like really excited for 2020 to be over, so I kind of have mixed feelings, but maybe, maybe you all can uh, relate to that. <clears throat> We're in the midst of our Advent teaching series, uh, which we are calling What's in a Names? where we are looking at the four names for the Messiah uh, that are given in Isaiah chapter 9 and how Jesus fulfills these names, these titles, in some really surprising ways. Over the last two weeks, we've spent a lot of time delving into the context of this passage, like what was actually going on in the world when Isaiah wrote this. Um, That background information is super important if you want to read this text well, um, but we're not going to recap that today. We've we've covered that for two weeks. Um, If you want to get caught up, um, you can hit up our sermon archives online at brockportfirstbaptist.org slash sermons, and you'll find the past recordings there. And it won't be too hard to follow, even if you, even if you missed that background information. But here's the, uh, the four names we've been looking at. Uh, they're found in verse 6 of our passage. They are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We've already hit the first two, which brings us today to Everlasting Father. 
Now, one thing I will say about the context of this passage uh, right up front briefly is that Isaiah wrote this poem after the birth of a new king, uh, King Hezekiah of Judah. And this poem, which is celebrating this new king and building anticipation for his reign, this poem includes a lot of like standard stuff people would say about kings back then. Like, um, take verse 7, for example. We should have it up here on the screen. The king's authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is all like standard royal stuff, right? Like this is what you say if you want to bless the king. The king's authority is going to grow. The new king's going to uphold justice and righteousness. Uh, God will will make it so. If you want to declare God's blessing on a new monarch, this is the kind of stuff you say. So when Isaiah calls this king an everlasting father, that's very well in line with all this kind of stuff. He's saying that this king is going to have children, and his dynasty is going to last forever. Nothing's going to destroy it. Nothing's going to shake it. There's always going to be an heir of this king on the throne. And you find this sort of thing all over the Old Testament. Um, Here's an example. It's from 2 Samuel 7. This is God talking to King David, Hezekiah's great-great-great-great-grandfather. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's pretty definitive. It's like an awfully nice thing for God to say to a new king. Here's a really similar line from uh, 1 Kings 9. This time God's speaking to Samuel, who's David's son, the next king. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. You get the idea, right? You kind of see the connection here. God's going to bless the king. One more example. It's actually my personal favorite. From Psalm 45. This is what it says. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your glory and majesty. This guy really likes the king. Um, Gird your sword on your thigh in your glory and majesty. In the place of ancestors, you, O king, shall have sons. Patriarchal society, right? You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be celebrated in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. Long live the king. Right? That's basically what's being said here. It's what everlasting Father is getting at. May God bless the king, give the king descendants, establish the king's dynasty for all time. There's just one tiny little problem with that. Hezekiah's rule did not last forever. David's dynasty didn't last forever. There's no descendant of King David sitting on a throne right now in Jerusalem, right? Most of us probably haven't even met a descendant of King David. There certainly wasn't a descendant of David ruling Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Instead, you had King Herod, who was a king appointed by the Romans. So if you were Jewish and living in the first century, you were waiting for God to fulfill this promise. 
and put a new king, a descendant of David, back on the throne. Someone who's going to be an everlasting father, whose lineage is going to last forever. And Jesus is a fascinating candidate for that. He's a descendant of David, so like he covers that, he checks that box. But other than that, just some problems with ascribing the term everlasting father to Jesus. First, he didn't have any kids, right? Like, Jesus was literally not a father. In fact, his life is the polar opposite of what you'd hope, what you'd expect for a new king. He was poor. He was homeless. He was dismissed as crazy by his family. He was abandoned by his friends. He was executed by a rival king. What kind of everlasting father is that? Another problem with applying this label to Jesus would be the Trinity. Um, For those who are unfamiliar, the Trinity is this distinctly Christian way of talking about and understanding God, where we believe that God is both one and three. So, like, we believe in one God, we're monotheists, and God is one, but that one God exists eternally as this community of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if that confuses you, congratulations, you understand the Trinity pretty much. Um, And like, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this. For those of you who are in the small groups, um, the book this week is actually going to delve into some of this Trinitarian stuff, so have fun with that. Um, But suffice it to say, following the Trinity's framework, Jesus is the Son, not the Father. So there's that problem. And there's also the problem of applying father language to God at all. Like, for one, it's very patriarchal, which is not a great look. And then, like, more importantly than that, if you had a father who was imperfect, um, if you had a father who was abusive or absent or neglectful or, or distant, it can be really problematic to think about God as Father at all, let alone Jesus. And if that's you, if that's your experience, if that's where you're coming from, I get it. I know what that feels like. But in spite of all these difficulties, in spite of like all these problems with applying this label to Jesus, I want to try to see if we can wrap our heads around how Jesus might actually be our everlasting Father. And I'm going to actually show my cards up front. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to give you all an outline. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about how Jesus reveals what God is like as Father. We're going to talk about Jesus as the Father of eternity, which is going to be interesting. And we're going to talk about Jesus as Father to an orphaned world. And we're going to cover all of that in about 20 minutes. (laughs) Sorry. Pray for me. Or maybe pray for you. I don't know. Baptist pastors don't wear watches. We'll see. Anyway, let's dive in, and let's start with this first point. Um, Jesus reveals what God is like as Father. So, like, with all the issues we might have, totally legitimate issues with applying Father language to God, it is important in this discussion to remember that that's language we actually get from Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who revealed God to us as Father in the first place. 
Like Jesus had this intimate, loving, parental relationship with God that we would not know or have access to apart from him. And while Jesus is not the Father, again, that's that whole Trinity thing, Jesus is the one who shows us what the Father is like. A couple examples of this. Um, one comes from John chapter 10. This is a passage where Jesus is debating uh, with the religious leaders, and this is what he has to say. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. <laughs> right? So like, like Jesus, he distinguishes himself from the Father here. He's not the Father. And yet he and the Father are one. Interesting. A few chapters later in John 14, um, the Apostle Philip this time asks Jesus to show us the Father. Show me the fa- what the Father looks like, Jesus. And this is Jesus' reply. How have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I am in the Father, the Father is in me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, don't look at failed human fathers or other broken, patriarchal forms of leadership. Look at the Son. Or to put it like way more plainly, God has to be at least as cool as Jesus. Sorry to use like fancy theological language, but God has to be at least as cool as Jesus. So what do we see when we look at Jesus? What kind of father is God if God actually looks like Jesus? There's a lot that we could say. We could be here all day talking about this. Well, I'll point out a few. First, if God looks like Jesus, then God is present, not absent. We often think about God as being far away, right? Like God's up in heaven and we're down here on earth. Uh, We talk about God as like a watchmaker who just like made the earth and then stepped away. I think that's called absentee parenting. You go to jail for that. Um, (laughs) But like we we, we reflect this kind of view of God in our prayers, right? Like, um, God, if you have a chance... If you can, can show up, if you can help me out with this one thing, right? We pray assuming that God is somewhere else, that God is far away. And maybe if we ask God really nicely, he'll show up and do something for us. But that's not how God looks if God looks like Jesus. Jesus left heaven to come here to live among us. Christ took on flesh, breathed our air, walked in our shoes, ate with us, laughed with us, cried with us, died for us. If God the Father looks anything like that, then God is incredibly present in our lives, not somewhere else. Another thing we could say if God the Father looks like the Son, 
is that God is incredibly loving, not dominating. Jesus didn't dominate. He didn't manipulate to get his own way. He wasn't controlling. He didn't try to overpower others through, like, sheer brute strength. Jesus' power was self-sacrificial love. And Jesus was never abusive. Instead, he gives us an incredibly nurturing picture of what God is like as Father. Nurturing, not abusive. In his um, last weeks of his life, as Jesus was coming toward Jerusalem, the city where he was going to be celebrated, welcomed as king, the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, before being killed a few days later. As he was walking toward that city, he looked over it with tears in his eyes, and he said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is going to his death. These people are going to kill him. And yet we don't see rage or fear or any of those other toxic traits we expect in like your typical fatherly figure. Instead, we see love and compassion, this nurturing picture of a mother hen gathering her chicks. Do you know where Jesus got this from? This like maternal image for God? Anyone, anyone know? The book of Isaiah, the, the book we're reading. Isaiah 49, check this out. This is, a, this is a part of Isaiah, a little bit later from the passage we're looking at today, where the people of Jerusalem are crying out and they're accusing God of forgetting about them. This is God's response in the poetry of Isaiah. <clears throat> Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these might forget, yet I will not forget you. It's Isaiah 49, verse 15. So what kind of father is God? Well, if the son is any indication, and if Isaiah's poetry is any indication, she's not the kind of father you were expecting. That's point one of my outline, okay? We made it. How are we on time? Oh, we're good. We've got, oh, we've got a lot of time. Excellent. These other the second two points are a lot quicker. <clears throat> That's point one. Jesus reveals what God is like as father. Let's talk about how Jesus is the father of eternity. This one gets interesting. This is another one of those weird grammatical things in the Hebrew. We talked about this last week. We did a little grammar lesson, and we talked about how in Hebrew poetry, which is what Isaiah 9 is, all the normal rules of grammar start to break down. Uh, When you look at one of these poems, you'll often have multiple accurate translations, and that's definitely um, another case of that is happening here. The promised Messiah of Isaiah 9 is called Everlasting Father, and that is like a perfectly fine, good, accurate translation of that phrase. But you could also render it Father of Eternity. It's another accurate translation. 
which like would make zero sense. You wouldn't call, you know, a, a human Jewish king the father of eternity, but that does open up some really interesting possibilities if we look at it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is a human being, right? Just like you and me, apart from sin. That's like a core idea of Christianity. Jesus is fully 100% human. But the early Christians who encountered Christ also detected something more than that. The ancient Greeks had a bunch of gods. Um, we got some of them pictured here. Um, there's gods like Zeus, Apollo, Hermes, all those guys and gals, basically. Um, but the Greek philosophers also believed that there was a power active in the universe, a force that was beyond the strength of the gods. This power is what differentiated up from down, left from right, light from darkness. It was the power that made sense of the universe, that held it all together, the thing that put the gods on Mount Olympus to begin with. And the Greek word for this power was logos. I hear you all say logos. Excellent pronunciation. Logos. Logos is where we get the word for logic, which kind of makes sense if you know the origin of the word. But if you literally translate the word logos to English, it's the word word. The logos is the word. What's the power that gives sense, that gives meaning to the universe? The, the force that holds everything together. What's the power that's beyond even the gods, the power of eternity itself? The Logos word. Now, this is all just like ancient Greek philosophy, right? This is like pagan stuff. We don't care what the Greeks thought about these things, right? But has anyone here read the opening of John's Gospel? Like, show of hands, anyone read John 1? For those, for those who haven't or for those who have and need a refresher, um, I'm going to read this for you. It'll be on the screen so you can read along. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through the Word, and without the Word, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in the Word was life, and the life was the light of all people. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm like giddy. I'm like excited. I don't, I don't know how to convey this. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the logos, that, the, the force for all you Star Wars fans, basically. What kind of, the force. Jesus is the force. Jesus is eternity itself taking on flesh and dwelling among us. The father of eternity. This actually leads really nicely into point three of our outline. Jesus as father to an orphaned world. We live in an orphaned world. It feels like especially highlighted in 2020. We live in a world where like nothing lasts. 
Nothing is permanent. Nothing lasts forever. Our leaders fail us. Our systems let us down. Uh, Relationships fall apart. Marriages end. Uh, The people who are supposed to love us sometimes stop loving us. Nothing lasts. We see this in various parts of our lives. We see it in our health. We see it especially uh, in the pandemic. We even see it in our technology. Our technology today is created, uh, designed with planned obsolescence. Is anyone familiar with the term planned obsolescence? In the good old days, you would buy something and it would just last. It would work forever. At least that's what they tell me. I'm a millennial, so I don't actually remember this at all, but I've been told. That, like, back in the day, if you bought a car or a stove or whatever, it would just last. It would work forever. I don't know where all this old stuff is that apparently was going to last forever, but this is what they tell me. And today, by contrast, it's more cost-effective for companies to design their products with planned obsolescence. If you buy a phone or an appliance or a computer, it's going to work really well for about five years. And then you're going to have to get an upgrade. That's planned obsolescence. It's almost like as a culture, we've just accepted that this is the way things work. It's the way they have to be. Nothing lasts, nothing is forever, everything is temporary. You're gonna need a new one of those in five years and you're gonna be excited about it for some reason. I don't know about you, but I'm getting kind of sick of planned obsolescence. And I'm not just talking about cell phones. I think we were made for more than this. I think we need more than this, something permanent, something we can trust. Someone who's going to be there come what may, no matter what. Someone who's going to stick with us, no matter what happens. It's, it's kind of no wonder that we think about God as far away or absent. We assume God is going to treat us just like every other authority figure in our lives because we live in an an orphaned world. But Jesus is the father of eternity. And in an orphaned world, Jesus is our everlasting father. Jesus is the one power in this universe that's bigger than the universe itself and yet as close to you as your breath. Christ will never leave you or forsake you. He won't give up on you or abandon you. He won't abuse you or mistreat you. If you're already someone who's a follower of Jesus, my hope is that you'll rediscover that love, that joy uh, this Advent season, that you'll um, rekindle that first love, that excitement, that you had for our everlasting Father. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, but maybe you're hungry for something permanent, you have that ache, you want a source of life that doesn't run out, you're looking for a taste of eternity, if that's you, you will find that in Christ. That's what we celebrate during Advent. That's what this season is all about. That baby in the manger is our everlasting Father. Let's pray.
God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in Christ. Thank you for revealing yourself as a nurturer, not an abuser, as a comforter, a co-sufferer, and a friend. In short, Lord, thank you for being our everlasting Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.